Hi, I'm Tom Sherrington. And I'm Emma Turner. Welcome to our new show, Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe, where we talk about closing gaps in global education through proven strategies and research-based practices. You'll hear our individual unique perspectives, as well as interviews with some of the most compelling authors and thinkers in the pre-K to 12 ecosystem. And now, enjoy today's show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello. Uh, We've had a fantastic response to recent episodes, uh, not least our interviews with Doug Lamov and uh, Sam Strickland. And it's brilliant to to hear so many people commenting on our um, podcasts, which are on Anchor and all the different platforms, as well as on YouTube. So thank you for joining us. So Emma, tell us, what have you been talking about a lot recently in your in your travels? Well, I have been devouring the new Teacher Development Trust paper, working paper on school culture because I've been doing a lot of reading around developing a culture in an organisation. I've been reading everything from books about Jurgen Klopp to revisiting Johnny Utley and John Thompson's book about putting staff first. And then I stumbled across this TDT working paper, which David Weston, Bethan Hindley and Maria Cunningham have put out. And I've been absolutely fascinated by that at the moment. Wow, amazing. There's a lot going on there. We're talking to um, Johnny and and John soon uh, about their their book. So tell us about this um, Teacher Development Trust paper. What's the kind of core uh, message? Well... They've looked at 30 different working papers about the relationship between school culture and teacher working conditions and pupil outcomes. And they've, they've, it's not a finished article. People can contribute to it still by visiting their website and submitting their thoughts and, and experiences on there. Um, but they've got some initial findings from it. And some of them, you kind of go, yeah, <laughs> that's blindingly obvious. And then other ones are some really interesting things to, to think about. Um, the first one is about that teacher working conditions has a really clear relationship with um, student attainment. So the conditions in which the student uh, teachers are working in the school. And then the other one, which is a really interesting one, is about the role of the school leader in fostering these conditions appears to be crucial because there's lots of discussion around the creation of a school culture and how much different staff in, with different responsibilities within an organisation can contribute to the development of culture. But actually what this paper is seeming to point out straight away, that ultimately it's the head teacher. And it's, it's all of that thinking around how much kind of influence you can have as a teacher, as a middle leader, as a senior leader on the development of a culture in your organisation if ultimately it is the the head teacher, the principal, the, the kind of the person at the very top that actually sets that culture. And I know that within kind of edu Twitter, there's been lots of discussion around school culture. And it's just a really interesting, timely paper that kind of pulls together a lot of the thinking around culture and, and who is actually responsible for developing it in the in the organisation. Well, that's so interesting. Now, I've, I haven't read the paper, so I, it's one of those things where you, you know, you, you immediately, so you've made me think I should read it um, to, to sort of have that same sort of thought process. So I, I, I've, I've got various experiences of going into a school as a, as a head and where in I, I would say in, in two cases, the culture was stronger than me. Like, that's how I felt. 
the schools were so uh, established and um, I felt like I was the custodian of the existing culture. And if I did anything, it was to sort of maybe tweak it a bit, uh, soften some things, strengthen some things, change some attitudes, you know, around things like homophobia or sexism or those sorts of things. But the kind of work ethic and the students' learning culture was already there and you just sort of strengthened it. And another place where I felt like there was a vacuum of a pre because of a, of a hiatus and then it was it took a long time to create a new culture mm. and um, you know you needed you felt like you needed a long long time and in the middle meantime I felt like there were kind of lots of subcultures <laughs> the culture in the art corridor or the culture in the in the maths block you know because different groups of people created a kind of atmosphere so it takes it's so interesting isn't it because there's lots of dynamics there Definitely. And in, I was talking to some colleagues the other day about one of the schools where I worked in, where, where I ended up being um, in headship there, was the school when I first joined it, it was in special measures. And it had a series of kind of interim head teachers or substantive head teachers. And it was amazing to work in that school and see as one person left and another came in, how much the culture shifted and how much it really was dependent on the head teacher in that organisation. Now, you could say that potentially in a school that was, um, you know, had an awful lot of challenges at that time, that it was open to kind of the, the whim and the drift and the, and the guidance of the individual, what, which kind of goes against what you were saying about you entered a school with a very established culture and it was harder to move. But it's just a really interesting model to, to think about how much influence the head teacher has. Um, and what the current feeling and level of confidence and level of established culture is within the school itself and the interplay between that. But it's it's really interesting paper to look at to think about the role of the head teacher. And I was talking to a colleague the other day, a different colleague, about the fact that when well, he posed the question, do you think you could change a culture if the head teacher said no? <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, however much you want to change a school as a middle or a senior leader, can you really do that if the head teacher is dead set against it? And this colleague was like, absolutely no, there's no way. So I think it depends what you mean by culture, doesn't it? Because there's lots of, obviously, we need to spend a lot of time defining things. Mm. Uh, my experience has always been, so when I go into, as a visitor to schools, um, I suppose I'm predisposed to this because I've, I've, I've read this, but I, I feel like I see it, is, is subcultures being a very strong feature of a school. So I'm thinking of, say, a big FE college where you've got, I don't know, say a performing arts faculty with of 10 or 12 people and the dynamics they have, the way they talk to each other, the way they're very serious about, about certain things, very, very sort of opinionated on certain things. That's the culture that they have created as a team. You go off to the construction department and it's like, you know, there's a different group of people. And so they're just complex organisations and the principal is like, is wrestling with all of these. And there is a kind of, I guess, a college culture, but, it, it varies so much from place to place. And, and I suppose, you know, what, which bits of that are the culture? And then there's, of course, the culture around sort of professional experience. If you go there, I think head teachers definitely shape things like the culture around how, how much your appraisal targets matter or how serious it is if, you're, if you have a dodgy lesson observation and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I, but, you know, and I, and I have met people who... Um, you know, head teachers who, when I've been in the school and they've come in where I was already there and then 
gone. And you think <laughs> that their impact from your perspective can sometimes be massive or, or kind of n- nothing. Yeah. So it's, if, I, I think it's really fascinating. It is fascinating. And I do think that if it, if at all possible to contribute to that because it's a it's a huge piece of work and David mm. and Bethan and Maria are doing great work on school culture but it's it's thrown up some really interesting conversations about can you change culture in a school if there's if the head teacher wants it to be one way and the rest of the staff want it to be another way it's how much influence both of those have so it's a just a, an interesting conversation that I've been that I came to and I came on it I came to it from reading a book about Jurgen Klopp when it was the difference between how Bill Shankly was managing Liverpool versus Jurgen Klopp. So that was what started it off for me. And I ended up from Klopp to David Weston. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I think it's so interesting. One of the things I, I always say to people when they're talking about, um, uh, say, preparing for an interview or, or presenting an idea, I always, I always talk about culture and systems because I feel like sometimes people are all, they talk about culture, they say, when I get this job, I'd like to create a culture of X. And then you, so your immediate follow-up question is, sounds great. So how would you go about that? <laughs> they say, it's like, oh, okay, that's a bit, why did you ask me that annoying question? And, and, other, and other people are the opposite. They're sort of, I'll, I'll make everybody do this and make everybody do that. And this is the system. And you're saying, okay, but what's the kind of spirit of that? You know, what's the kind of the culture you're trying to create through that? And so sometimes you need to sort of remind certain people of the other thing. But I just don't think you can have one without the other. You you can't just will a culture into being. It has to be through the actions that you take and everything. I think, and this is not an education book at all, that book there, Klopp, on page 80, it unpicks what Bill Shankly did versus what Klopp did. Bill Shankly basically built the infrastructure of the football ground made sure that everything worked, everything, yeah, the pitch was was ready, the even like fixing how it was watered and everything. And then Klopp did like the culture bit. And it was a it was a really interesting way that they're both kind of highly respected yeah. um, figures within there, but they did two completely di- different things. One's one built the infrastructure of the club and the ground. The other one developed this kind of culture thing. So page eighty, that one. If you want to look at two completely different ways of looking at uh, developing leadership and culture, have a look at that one. Not education, but I'd highly recommend it. Do you have to be a Liverpool fan to appreciate it? No. <laughs> no, 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 actually you don't. And, I'm, and I would say that it's a really brilliant book about leadership, um, regardless of which football team you support. It's okay. not necessarily about Liverpool, it's about leadership. Well, that's fantastic. So the, the TDT um, research paper, that is a must read. So thank you for sharing that. Definitely. And you've been reading a few bits and bobs as well, haven't you? What have you been thinking about? Yeah, well, I suppose the thing that, the thing that I've been... I, researching a bit recently is about assessment and um because one of the things that i do is i'm a trustee for the national baccalaureate trust and we're about to um launch a consultation next term about the idea of having a national baccalaureate for england i'll talk about that more on another episode but in part of the research i've been attending various webinars and reading various things about assessment because people are there's a, there's a lot of debate in, in England at the moment because our exams have been cancelled about, um, well, it's not just because our exams have been cancelled. This debate's been going on for ages, but it's definitely heightened about what the purpose of exams is. How do you validate children's learning? And, and the difference between, say, getting a qualification in something and, say, getting a passport that 
recognizes your effort and so on so that you can move on to the next level of your education and, and exams try to do so many things and now we don't have them teachers are having to re- replace that with assessments but looking beyond that even post the covid situation there's this whole debate about the purpose of exams how many we should have um and there are lots of issues around having too many formal qualifications at 16 and the difference between, say, academic and vocational qualifications, which is a big issue, and the fact that a public exam, by its nature, sort of ranks people, and you have people who are at the bottom end of any bell curve who then end up with a pretty poor record of the things they can do, and they kind of have a list of things they've, they've failed rather than a list of achievements. So there's all these sort of interesting debates. So I've been reading a lot of what people are sort of pre- proposing as alternatives and being horribly disappointed by what I'm finding. So I was sort of hoping that I've been rereading all these like, oh, wow, well, let's do that instead. And I'm just not finding it. So I'm finding there's a lot of things which I don't agree with and I, which I feel are sort of very, very tenuous, these sort of soft alternatives, including things like um, dispositional kind of m- metrics, which sounds very nerdy, but basically let's let's say this we all we all agree that we want rounded people we want kids to be knowledgeable and and be able to do lots of stuff but we also want them to be resilient creative kind um you know humble (laughs) whatever you list it and but then there are these people who think that what we should be doing to sort of counter the, the the weight of public exams is somehow kind of accrediting children's kind of capacities in some formal way like and I just think it's it's horrible I mean I and I think there's a tension here like for example I might value kindness I want I might teach about being kind in my school and I might even say things like I think we could be kinder like you're you, you seem a lot kinder now than you seemed before and I might even be able to say that but I can't really say how kind anyone is can I because how do I know? I don't know their, what they're like in, the, in their life. I can never say that person is a kinder person than that person. That's not a meaningful thing to say. And if you've got then children thinking they can do that, they end up with these sort of horrible self-reflection sheets where they start saying, now, how do you rate your own kindness? And you can substitute, substitute kindness for resilience. You know, am I a resilient person? Well, you know, I climbed that mountain. I went on the outward bound. I got through the weekend. I moaned, I moaned my head off the whole way through, but I did it. Or it could be, I've been practicing the piano for twelve for, for, for three years, and I'm, you know, I, I, that's pretty resilient to keep going. But but when I went on the outward bound weekend, I cried my eyes out because I hated it. <laughs> Does that mean I'm not resilient? I just think it's all a mush of very very loosely defined things which do not stand up to scrutiny when you try to measure them, mm. and we shouldn't be touching it with a barge pole. So that, that's that's one of the things I've been thinking about. You know, like so I've written a wrote, wrote about that recently. Like value valuing something does does not mean you have to give it a scale um, or even a certificate. You know, it's just you can promote lots of things in schools without having them to have some outcome. Don't you think? I mean, that's what that's my that's what I've been thinking a lot about recently. Yeah, and I think that's what a lot of the Ferrari about the assessment that was going to go on like the baselining with the YFS because it was trying to get to measure some things that aren't measurable um and yes you want children to be like you say well-rounded 
but it's how do you measure it? You know, do you rate yourself on the scale from Oliver Twist up to Bill Sykes? You know, where do you, where do you sit on on this spectrum from kind of hero to villain? It's just. I know it's weird, isn't it? I mean, I'm thinking there's, there's so many things like curious. I want I want children to be curious. How curious am I? Um, very curious. I mean, it's just so weird. I mean, it's um, it's what I'm curious about what? And um, am I more curious than I was last week? It, it's all it's all very nebulous. And I think we if if we used to think that as a, as a, as educators that the way to kind of balance out what we might think of as an overly knowledge-heavy, exam-heavy system, which even if we agree on that, to, to balance that out, we're going to have some more measures of other things. I, I just think we've lost the argument. We should be saying, give it value, make, make kids have opportunities so that they can be creative, be curious, be, become resilient, you know without sticking on the... It reminds oh. You remember, there's that old joke about don't I don't want to go on a school trip because the teacher's going to make me write about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to go there, but it's almost like you want them to have the experiences that will develop those sorts of attributes, and you want to promote yeah. that, but you then don't want to kill it by trying to systemize it. A bit like that old joke: you don't, you know, don't go on the trip. You'll have to write a report about it. But it's well, exactly, and I. And I I, I did this thing. So I did this. Sur- I found a survey, which is actually, you know, from a website about alternatives to assessment. It was linked to this. And and, and it's got questions. This is the survey question for things like this. Um, you know, you have to say whether it's very much like you, very, very much like me on a scale up down to very much unlike me. And so the question things like, I have been richly blessed in my life. <laughs> or if I feel down, I always think about what is good in my life. And you're thinking, I, it's just so cheesy. I, I just can't bear the idea that this was finding its way into schools. Um, and I really hope it doesn't. This is the most tenuous link ever. But I don't suppose you saw that TikTok video that Tom Bennett posted, did you, with the woman who's this, who's the psychologist who's debunking all of those? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you say? There's all these people who just, who, who just say, research shows without any, <laughs> like, it's all nonsense. But here's, here's, here's a, a kind of a, another aspect of it. I, I just think what we should be doing in terms of curriculum design is recognising that, let's say, for example, you've got a group of kids or, who, who go on an Outward Bound weekend. Now, I, when I was a head teacher, I was lucky to be in a school where there's a relationship with this organisation called, um, well, it was, it was, I won't promote a particular one, but it was an outdoor education uh, outfit. And they did lots of weekends where you would go away with children. We had to sort of argue for the money. We had to lobby for, for, for fundraising and so on. But the people giving you the money would, would want to say, well, what's the impact of the children going away on the weekend? And you want to say, oh, give us a break. You know, like we can't prove that Mohammed and Abdi and Sam and, and Daisy have changed their character <laughs> in some definable way because they went on an outward bound weekend. It's nonsense. They go, they, you, we just say, we know that what Outward Bound weekends are. They, they're away from home. There's no phones. They have to live, live in the sort of different social environments. They have to do physical challenges. It's tiring. They have to cope with that. And they have to do loads of things out of the city for London kids. Climb a mountain. See their country. That's one of the things we should say. They'll see Wales, we should go to Wales, as being part of the same country they live in. As a physical place, this is your own. This is where you live. It's part of the same nation of the UK, and 
We thought that was all well, important. Let's check that about before every geographer in the world comes after you. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, this is the whole thing. Like, they, when we were there, kids would, they found kids speaking Welsh and stuff. And they were, they, it was mind blowing. So it's, 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 they're opening up the opportunity to, to see their own country as a mixed group of people. Now, I, I can't measure that. I can't, um, I can't prove that those people are later in life more resilient. It probably, they probably aren't. They just have the experience of doing it. And that should be enough. That's what I'm saying. Those experiences, we know what they do. Playing the violin and getting good at that, we know what that involves. And we know that we, we can say it's a good thing. I don't have to prove it has spin-off impact. So I, I'm, I'm sort of finding these things frustrating because people are over, overdoing the valuing of these things beyond what they can sustain. And yet they're still so important. Yeah. They're conflating the act of measuring it with the actual value of doing it in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So I, that's what I think. A good, diverse curriculum doesn't need to have a load more spurious measures. So that's what I've been talking about. So let's <laughs> like rant over. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. So let, let's go back to you then. So what, what have you been, what other things you've been reading about recently or reading? Tell, tell us about that. Nice little segue there, Tom, with the diversity. Yeah. So I've been reading Benny Cara's uh, book, The Little Guide for Teachers, Diversity in Schools by Corwin. And it is an absolute beauty of a book because not only is it really little, it's um, it's really concise, it's really user-friendly and it's user-friendly, but it's also friendly because I think so many people can get so raveled up and frightened of saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong question and being really fearful of, 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 of offending uh, by saying the wrong thing, that what Benny does in here is provide a really friendly route through for people who want to explore topics of diversity in schools in a really supportive way with lots of practical tips and hints and ideas that you can take straight into your classroom the next day. So she talks about lots of classroom practice-based things, lots of departmental-based things, lots of whole school um based approaches and I read it kind of in one sitting I've been back to it and had a, another look at it but it's so useful as a kind of one-stop shop of, of yeah. an introduction to diversity and I've read a lot of books about um on issues around diversity but this one is so accessible and so useful so thank you Benny for writing that because I've absolutely loved it <laughs> no, I, th- I think she's done a, a really good thing with that book because it's it's diversity in lots of different dimensions so she mm-hmm. talks about you know kids with disabilities lgbtq um and obviously in in, in terms of the, the sort of post black lives matter the response to ethnic racial diversity and how we we kind of deal with being anti-racist in our in our outlook all of it and um diversifying the curriculum as a way of tackling all those agendas is is really really powerful isn't it she, yeah, she did this talk, um, and I, I wrote, I wrote, there are five things that I've got written down here as a, as a list, which I found really, uh, well, I asked her to do a, a walkthrough for volume two of walkthroughs, <laughs> and she did. <laughs> so she was one of our guest authors. Oh. But actually, the book, that book that she's written, I, I, was, I was saying to you just before that it has left my house, which means that 
Not that it means that my wife has taken it. Got it. I was listening to Benny earlier on on a a session that she was doing for our trust, actually. And I wrote down one killer quote. And because I'm an idiot, I've I've lost it. There was something about the curriculum being the tool for for promoting diversity, that your curriculum is your diversity in your school. And I just thought... What a brilliant, brilliant quote. But I'm misquoting her terribly now. So I'm going to have, we're going to have to get her on just so I can get her to say that bit again. <laughs> but the thing she said, like, there, there are a few things. So one of the things she, she, borrow, she borrows this phrase, um, which, which comes from Sue Sanders, who, who um, found Schools Out, which is um, about supporting LGBT students uh, to be out in their school. So, and, and, and Sue Sanders has this phrase called usualizing diversity. Mm. And that's the kind of the, the opposite to having sort of diversity days or here come the here come the black authors, you know, it's sort of like <laughs> it's about diversity being kind of unspecial almost, like it's just yeah. absolutely every day. And so that the children see it as part of the normal fabric of everyday school. And, yeah, and it's not and normal, she thinks, is a problematic word because of it just has been used in different contexts, but usualizing, making things usual every day, I think is really, really great. She was talking today about normal only being used in this context um, very recently, because it used to be only in, the, in a mathematical context, apparently, Tom. Uh, but wow. I, found my, I found my quote. Her quote yeah, was... That was very, very slick. Very good, very good. I was rustling through the papers. She's, she put the curriculum is the act of allyship in schools. I just thought, what a brilliant, brilliant thing that actually the way you design your curriculum is the way that you act and you enact your allyship in all of the protected characteristics that she talks about in the book, you know, the, the whole um the whole the whole range in there. So I love that. I'm gonna have that in everything I do now. So thank you, Benny. I'll credit you with that. The curriculum being the act of allyship. But I would definitely recommend looking at her work and looking at and, um, and read um the the section in walkthroughs volume two, which is called Diversity Ways into Curriculum Building. It's 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 gold. I'll tell you now it's it's page 58. <laughs> Almost like you wrote that book, Tom, you found that so slickly. Yeah, it's right in front of me here. She, one of my favourite ones of her ideas is, is she calls it, she talks about parallel stories. So one of the things, challenges teachers often find is, like, they're thinking, I have to do this extra. I have to sort of find time to add extra stuff in. And she's saying, no, you have to, you know, whenever there's a, a historical narrative, which is a fairly standard sort of Western um, European narrative, there's a parallel story uh, in another, you know, place in the world uh, a different cultural stand, standpoint a different perspective on the same event and when you're telling this story you also tell the story from the other perspective and you weave them together and it doesn't take you more time you just remember to include that because they're happening at the same time how would they have seen it or how would they have seen it and then we are seeing that these stories are normal and if you do that with everything um, it just becomes part of a web of of stories that are being told in your curriculum and that to me is just one really simple idea it's not additional. It's it's that thing of linking up, twisting it all together. Um, it, 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 in a very sort of pra- pragmatic sense, it's sort of time efficient. It, it's not extra. It's just embedded. Yeah, and if you think about connection making across the curriculum, the the amount of connections, rich connections that you make by looking at things from different angles is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So what else have we been doing then, Tom? Have people been asking you quite a few questions? <laughs> been reading well my my reading i'm gonna we're gonna 
and I focus on these. Now, I love to have these in my hand. And it's not just because um, I, I, I'm proud that I've managed to bring these into life by asking the people to write them. But then after that, they just went away and write them. So you've got here Generative Learning by Zoe and Mark Enser in action. Oliver Lovell's Cognitive Load Theory in action. And Johnson Tomsett's Cognitive Apprenticeship in action. So these are the action series. And they're just so good. And they're all, these are people who are teachers and John's book, John Thompson's book, is written by 23 of his staff in his school. Each one has done a chapter on a um, on their subject, applying the ideas from Collins's paper about cognitive apprenticeship, which is the idea that when you're teaching children to, 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 to a subject discipline, you're, you're engaging them in a process of cognitive apprenticeship, which is to learn to think like the expert in that subject. And so the way that you get kids to think like an expert in English is different from how it is in math history and they just got really detailed examples of how they do it and there's a sort of framework which Collins uh, promotes for kind of areas and, and the books that weaves its way through so that's just I just think they're so good because the teachers teachers have written them taking research and putting them into practice so that's one thing I'm ex I've been excited about and the other one is a paper which I, I think is a gift um, it's a, anything free is a gift, right? And this is um, a paper called um, What Should Schools Teach? Disciplines, Subjects, and the Pursuit of Truth, um, edited by Alka Segal Cuthbert and Alex Standish from the um, UCL, so University College London Press. And it's a free PDF. So if you're anywhere in the world and you, and you Google What Should Schools Teach by UCL, it's a free PDF. And what they've done is they've, They've got a number of um, writers, some teachers, some academics, to kind of set out what the disciplinary knowledge is in that subject area that kind of defines the subject. So you've got um, something, you know, something about English literature, art, drama, music, um, geography, history, art, religious education, biology, physics, maths, and so and, and they're just so interesting. They're quite academic. They're, they're written, you know, as an academic piece of work, and each chapter is quite quite meaty but it's it's if you want to get really into the stuff as a school leader or as a teacher in one of those subjects reading the chapter from there would be a really good starting point if i was say the 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 line manager or the coach or the geography teacher and i want to really help them and get to know what it's like to teach geography i would read the chapter in this and and say right wow is that that's true <laughs> Do There's a lot going on i think i think it's great this stuff is produced by people it's in our world it's in our system and it's shared freely i think it's absolutely magnificent do you think you could read the whole thing do you think it's possible to digest the whole lot well it's 280 pages so of course it's possible but it's 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 the sort of book you don't need to read cover to cover you know it's um you know it's you you can just read the bits that you need and there's a, there's a rhythm to it but it's just that it just gives you a feeling of uh the disciplinary discussions that go on in those subjects we are non-specialist, but none of us are specialists in all those areas. It's just so interesting hearing how other people talk about their subject discipline. Uh, and that's what schools are about. At the end of the day, like, like Benny is saying about curriculum, you know, curriculum is a core when we're talking about diversity, but it's also is when you just talk about how, you know, what a great school is anyway. And so the, if, if the sort of deep thinking about what, what the subjects are and what you should be teaching in them, Often, you know, people are kind of feeling their way and to have something like that where you can read um, 
as a chap is, is really exciting. Coming at it with my primary hat on, thinking we have to teach all of them. Is it possible to, is it digestible for the primary practitioner to be able to get to grips with or is it more? I think, I think to be honest, probably <laughs> you need people to mediate this stuff, don't you? So you probably would need someone to read it, digest it and interpret it <laughs> for people who are teaching 15 subjects. Yeah. I, it's a lot to take in there's no doubt but it's um i have seen it done and i i have seen some of the most impressive curriculum development work i've seen anywhere has been in primary schools it's next so it, in terms of subject specialism so yeah. I, I think it's I, I think it's wrong to think of primary schools as being where you these things wouldn't be like there it's just that, you wouldn't get one teacher to know that's not what i'm saying i'm saying how is it going to be realistic <laughs> to get through the document? I'm not saying primary practitioners don't do brilliant subject leadership or subject specialists. I'm just saying how accessible <laughs> and realistic is it to get through that <laughs> if you're going to get to grips with it? I think I'd say, well, let me say, I'd say, you know, very. Um, I, I think it's, I, I do think it's like, you know, there are, there are other places to go for, um, you know, uh, you know, guides to curriculum in lots of different con- forms, aren't there, in different kind of levels of pra- practicality. But this idea of sort of subject um, discipline, disciplinary knowledge, I think is is useful. In fact, recently, you know, doing some training with teachers about, say, science and geography and primary curriculum, I find it fascinating how varied the knowledge that the people involved in that is for themselves. And they were, when they're open about it, that's quite interesting. They you know, it's, it's and it is. It does. It's the, the the breadth of specialisms in in primary curriculum is is really amazing, actually. And I think it's to to get to that level of knowledge in all of them is hard. But I read somewhere, and I wish I could find the reference. And if anybody knows where it is, because I read it in a newspaper about 10, 15 years ago, and it said to teach year six to a level where you're kind of highest attaining year sixes would normally sit um you need the knowledge equivalent of 10 a levels and i used to wear that as a badge of honor because i taught in year six yeah. <laughs> I was like, it, it is a massive massive knowledge i'm not, I'm not I don't want to say burden but expectation to be the expert in the room for a dozen different subjects you know six weeks before they go on to teach be taught by specialist teachers but that's another conversation for another day (laughs) (laughs) it is that's great so it just shows you you know in in it's it's in the the course of this episode you know we're we're talking about so many different things talk about culture assessment (laughs) curriculum diversity um and kind of it's it's great that's why this job is so interesting isn't it and and why (laughs) the world is so amazing so look thank you everyone for joining us on this episode um We've got interviews coming up with uh, Johnny Utley and John Thompson. And um, if you haven't seen the Sam Strickland episode yet, please check it out. It's absolutely fantastic. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And see you again soon on Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.